Well, good morning, friends. I hope that whether you're watching this together with us on Sunday morning or whether you're catching up later in the week, that this would be an encouraging time for you. And as we gather together virtually, I really would encourage you to not think about this as a poorer cousin to gathering together in person, but rather as a time when the Lord can really speak to us, when he can really strengthen our faith and when those who don't yet know him can be saved. And that certainly is my prayer for us as we spend time together this morning. Today, we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of James, and we're going to be exploring another practical but really challenging passage. And my hope is that while this isn't necessarily the easiest passage to hear, that it would be instructive and helpful for us all. Now, before we do any of that, I'm sure there's a pretty obvious question on your mind. What on earth has this numpty done to his arm? Well, I wish I had an impressive story about wrestling a bear or pulling off an awesome jump on my mountain bike. But alas, it's a good deal less exciting than that. I managed to dislocate my shoulder while pushing a supermarket delivery van out of the snow. It's not quite the macho tale that I was hoping for. And unfortunately, this is not the first time I've dislocated one of my shoulders. In fact, between the two of them, I've done them four times. And perhaps one of the more impressive stories is doing it by falling during a, a snowboarding jump. It's a lot cooler than pushing the Asda van, but it was equally just as sore. Now, I don't know if many of you are into snowboarding or know much about snowboarding. If you are, maybe let us know in the chat because there's a few of us that would be very excited to hear that. But if you will bear with me for just a minute, I want to give you a quick lesson on snowboarding. Now, I've got my snowboard sitting over here to help us understand a little bit about what I'm getting at. But the basic premise of snowboarding is that you can control your speed and your direction by leaning heavily on one of these edges down the side of the board. You want that to dig into the snow and it will then allow you to have control. They're pretty sharp actually. And you have one edge that kind of goes behind you, which you lean back on your heels, and one edge that's in front of you, which is your toes. So you can either go down facing the hill on your heel edge, or you can turn around and face towards the hill um, on your toe edge. Now staying on these edges is relatively easy to master. But there's a key milestone in every snowboarder's journey where they become a competent rider by learning to switch from one of those edges to the other. And to do that, you're on an edge, you effectively have to point down towards the hill and then kick out onto the other edge. And the challenge is to do that, you've got to pass through a point of vulnerability where you're neither on one edge or the other. So you're on your edge, you point down the hill and at that point, you're not in control. And if you get that wrong, you end up pointing directly down the hill, going completely out of control, and you're likely in a world of pain at the bottom. You have to, in that moment, be single-minded and completely commit to the turn. You have to push harder than you maybe think you have to. You have to put your whole body into that movement and to make sure that you succeed and enjoy the ride. If you're unsure, if you're double-minded in any way, if you try and stay equally on both edges, you're going to likely crash and either you or others are going to get hurt. So, other than the fact that I love to talk about snowboarding, why on earth am I telling you this? 
Well, in today's passage, there's a similar challenge about us being double-minded. As we continue our journey through the book of James, we see a stark warning about being double-minded in our commitment to Christ. In fact, we see that in doing so will send us out of control and it will cause pain to others and to ourselves. As we start chapter four, we build from chapter three, which we looked at last week. And that outlined two opposing types of wisdom. An earthly wisdom that was rooted in selfishness and jealousy versus a godly wisdom that is pure and peaceable. It's gentle, it's open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And as we look to chapter four, James now brings this issue to a head with a stark warning that we simply cannot straddle both types of wisdom. He starts in verse one by posing a question to us. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And the answer is that quarrels and fighting, covetousness and even murder are rooted in double-mindedness. As we look forward and we look at the whole passage that was read to us this morning from verse one to verse 12, we see that double-mindedness has additional consequences of conflict, of wrong desires, of mixed, missed blessings, of speaking evil and judging one another. And as believers, we suffer, others suffer, and the church suffers when our selfish ambitions and pride are at the forefront. And this is an intimidating prospect, and it's one I'm sure we'd all like to avoid. But in reality, what is it that James means? we have a look at the second half of verse one it gives us a good insight when it says your passions are at war within you as believers we're being we're in danger of being torn between the desires that are pure and peaceable based on wisdom from God and those that are selfish and prideful based on wisdom from the world and as we move through the passage James is much stronger in his language in verse 4, he begins to tell us that that split desire is adulterous or unfaithful. And then he moves on even further. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These are strong words, and it should make us sit up and listen. I'm sure that none of us want to be in the position of being enemies with God. And this feels really similar to the words that are written to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation, where God's message is this. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's quite the image. Being lukewarm, being neither hot nor cold is repulsive to God. Another example is in 1 John Chapter 2 and verse 15, where we're warned that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The message is clear. We need to make sure that we are single-minded in our commitment to Christ. And as believers, our lives should look different. Our desires should be changed and we should be living lives which are above all motivated to bring glory to God. We need to understand a very simple but important truth. Our lives, our desires, 
and our comfort are not of ultimate importance. Let me say that again. Our lives, our desires and our comfort are not the most important thing. The problem is that this statement is completely and utterly countercultural. The world around us pulls us in the complete opposite direction. And if we allow it, those opposing forces will begin to war within us. I said that in verse 1, it talks about this idea of passions being at war within you. And that word passion is translated from the Greek word hedon, which is where we get the word hedonism from. And interestingly, on dictionary.com, hedonism is defined as the doctrine that pleasure is the highest good. It's quite astonishing to me that it was described as doctrine, adding somehow to the evidence that this argument of our passions being are completely in opposition to the way of Christ. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that there are countless situations across history where that notion of pleasure at all costs has had utterly devastating consequences. There's a lot of practical lifestyle examples that I could give here, but I suspect if we're honest, if we all took a moment to look carefully at our hearts and lifestyles, we already know the areas where we're tempted to walk with one foot in the world and one foot following Christ. That said, for the sake of illustration, let me give you one scripture. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. As a sort of perfect example of this warring tension, Jesus turns this to the idea of money and he makes it abundantly clear that an unhealthy pursuit of riches is simply not compatible with devotion to Christ and that runs completely against the grain of the world which is regularly telling us that money is the single biggest route to happiness. Now I'm not going to talk to you about precisely how you should be spending your money but I would urge you to look hard and what grip that has on your life. How much of your affection is being given towards the pursuit of wealth or possessions or the latest gadget or the next fashion item? Friends, these things are not necessarily bad in themselves, but if they draw your affections away from Christ, then it's something to address urgently. Now, the point I'm trying to make and the one that James is making is not specific to money. It's just one illustrative example. It could be equally applicable to unhealthy relationships, our attitude to success, our interactions with alcohol. The list could go on. And ultimately, this is not a question of action. It's a question of pride and the elevation of our selfish desires. James goes on to close out the challenge by quoting Proverbs 3.34, where he says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride is something we need to lay aside if we are to live single-minded lives. My testimony is that when I was a young Christian, I battled pretty hard with the need to turn from some of the unhelpful things that I was doing before the Lord took hold of my life. I had had a radical 
encounter with Jesus and I turned my life around almost overnight as a result. But the temptations of that old world were real. And I had a couple of catastrophic forays back into those old ways and, and struggled for a little while with the duplicity of my lifestyle. Thankfully, over the years, the Lord was gracious and helped me to navigate that time and to fully commit to a completely new life in Christ. And the truth is, we're all prone to wander. Our hearts are easily swayed and the temptation to be drawn towards our own pleasures and desires and comfort is a constant battle. The irony is that in doing so, we're giving up the best life that we could have for one that is empty. We're giving up a feast for the scraps on the floor. In John 10, 10, Jesus tells you that he came to give us life in abundance with freedom and hope and joy and peace. And by contrast, the promises that the world offers are empty and fleeting and ultimately self-destructive. The collective wisdom of the world is in complete opposition to the gospel, to the good news of Christ. No amount of money or pleasure or popularity can bring us ultimate peace and hope. We, we see that all the time when we watch the celebrity world who on paper have everything they could ever need. And yet in reality, often they end up empty and desperate and doing crazy things to fulfill a gap in their lives. And just a quick side note, for those of you who are watching who might be exploring faith but are yet to fully give your lives completely to Jesus. The result of that, of committing to him, is not that you'll somehow be bound by a whole bunch of new rules or that your life will be boring as a result. In fact, the complete opposite is true and that was the testimony in my life. Following Christ offers the, a life that's anything but boring. It fulfills in a way that nothing else I've ever experienced in this world can. By trying to embrace the life of Christ and the promises of this world, we rob ourselves of an abundant blessing. And we need to grasp the promises of Christ with both hands. The strength of language in James shows us that we need to take this idea of double-mindedness deadly seriously. Verse 9 tells us that our response to this should be mourning and weeping. We need to be sure not to get comfortable with this position of straddling the world and the things of God. Now the point of sharing today is not to laden you with guilt. Passages like this could should be challenging and should prompt us to change but the answer is not to simply try harder and be more committed in your faith. Thankfully, James gives us a roadmap on how to make a change. So in verses 7 to 10, James outlines five different actions we can take. Firstly, we need to submit to God. As Martin so wonderfully um, shared with us a couple of weeks ago, the answer to taming our tongue is not to try and turn the ship, it's to ask for a new captain. And likewise, when we ask Jesus to be Lord of our lives, we, when we surrender control to him, we stop that internal wrestling and we trust that his will for our lives is perfect. Secondly, we need to resist the devil. Make, make, make no mistake about it. 
the desires of this world are from the source of evil. This enemy would love nothing more than to disable the church by creating a people that are trying to both follow God and at the same time to satisfy their worldly desires. A distracted and double-minded people is entirely ineffective in the mission of Christ. But we're promised that when we resist the devil, James tells us that when we're clear about who the Lord of our lives is, that the devil will flee from us. Thirdly, we need to draw near to God. When we draw near to God, when we embrace everything he has for us, he in turn draws near to us. He gives us a heart transplant so that our desires are changed and our affections are drawn towards him rather than being drawn towards the things of this world. Fourthly, we need to take sin seriously and repent. We need to recognize it for what it is, an offense to God. And that should cause us to grieve. It should cause us to ultimately change for the better. And James compares this process to the Old Testament rituals of cleansing and purification. And truthfully, we need to sometimes cleanse our lives of the things that pull us in the wrong direction. Whether that's how we spend our time, what we dwell on, the things that we look at or watch, the people that we admire, it's helpful for us all to look at our lives and cleanse it of the things that sway our affections in the wrong direction. Finally, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. We do need to recognize our need for him. We need to recognize our inability to change on our own. And we need to humbly ask him to help us. And the promise is that he gives grace to the humble. In fact, he goes on to take it one step further and says that he will exalt the humble. Brothers and sisters, the truth is that God wants us to have a single-minded commitment to him because he knows that that is where we will receive the most blessing. As tempting as it may be to try and walk a balance between the desires of God and our own desires, it's ultimately a road which will lead to disappointment, to emptiness and to turmoil. Even the most attractive things in this life are temporary. The passage we quoted earlier in 1 John chapter 2 goes on to tell us that the, the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The single-minded believer is promised an incredible reward. Life in all of its fullness in this world and hope of eternity with Christ forevermore. I would encourage you, don't choose the vulnerable point between the two edges of the snowboard where you'll run out of control and crash. Fully commit to leaning into the things of God and enjoy the thrill of a journey with him and a life in all its abundance. Be blessed this week. Amen.